So, why the mob? Why did Jesus' hometown crowd turn into an angry, violent mob and try to throw him off a cliff? That's what we just heard from Luke 4. For months now, I have been planning on preaching this passage on this Sunday. The narrative lectionary has us walking through the Gospel of Luke from Christmas all the way through Easter, and it's been my intention to follow that reading plan and do just that. It's why we heard from Luke chapter 3 last Sunday. We're in Luke chapter 4 today. Next week, we'll be in Luke chapter 5. This story for this Sunday has been on my calendar since September. And so a week and a half ago, when a mob of Trump-supporting, Confederate flag-waving, Nazi symbol-carrying, Jesus flag-waving, Christian nationalists, white supremacists, stormed our nation's capital, I already knew that I would be preaching on Luke 4 today. This story where Jesus goes to church back in his own hometown and the congregation gathered there, the congregation that he grew up with, the congregation that thought of themselves as good, God-fearing, church-attending religious people, turned into an angry, violent mob and not only kicked Jesus out of their church, they tried to throw him off a cliff. And so it seems to me that I have to address the question, why? Why the mob? It's the question the whole world is asking, isn't it? Of course, we have to be careful what parallels we make here between this story and Luke 4 and the story of our own particular time. In fact, I was talking to my brothers through Marco Polo as I really struggled to write this sermon this week, and trust me, I, I'm still struggling over this sermon. But one of my brothers said to me, you know, Chris, the mob in D.C. did erect a noose to hang Mike Pence. Does that make Mike Pence Jesus in your sermon? <laughs> well, certainly not. So yeah, there are some important connections that we need to make here, but we do have to be wise readers of Scripture, and we have to be profoundly committed to studying and actually following Jesus's way, not just waving around Jesus's name or we might make the wrong connections. And that's dangerous business, you know, making the wrong connections between our faith and our world, making the wrong connections between our scriptures and our time. Because when we do that, we may just end up part of a church that is inciting us to something other than the way of Jesus, whether we're conservative or liberal, doesn't really matter. 
we may just end up throwing Jesus out of our church, even as we are using Jesus's name. Certainly, that's been on full display this week. Throughout our history, it's happened on the right and the left, but most recently, we've seen it as Christian leaders and church attenders, people waving Jesus' flags across our country, somehow made a connection between the scriptures and our time, and in the process, came to believe that a reality TV star who spent most of his life in unrepentant greed and serial adultery and compulsive lying was God's anointed person to represent their deepest hopes for our communities. Now, let me be very clear. I am not talking about every Christian who voted for him. Please do not hear me say that. There are times when all of us do our best and make hard and uncomfortable choices when we go to the ballot box. I know. And there are times when any of us who are paying attention enough end up regretting who we voted for. I know I certainly have. There are votes that I have cast in my past that I would change now in retrospect if I could. Maybe some of you feel that way too. I don't know. But if you do, please know that this sermon is not crafted to somehow subtly condemn you. That's the last thing I'm interested in today. And after 10 years of being your pastor here, I hope you know my heart well enough by now to trust that. This sermon is for all of us who are a part of congregations in America who are asking ourselves, why the mob? Why was there a mob of people who look an awful lot like me waving Jesus flags just like I used to wear Jesus t-shirts in high school storming our capital? Why was there a mob of church-going people in Nazareth not only throwing Jesus out of their church but trying to rid the world of Jesus by throwing him off the cliff? That's a question we have to ask ourselves because apparently this is who we are. No, it's not all that we are, but let's not be so naive to keep repeating this is not who we are. If we didn't know already, now we know the tree will be revealed by its fruit. This is part of who we are. And we need to be asking ourselves why. How is it that we who call ourselves Christians and leaders like myself who lead other Christians can get caught up in a movement that is evoking the name of Christ but is driven by something that is anti the very spirit of Christ, which means it's a movement that's being powered by what our scriptures call the spirit of the anti-Christ, and yet at the same time sincerely believe that we are doing the work of Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.14 warns us about this possibility, you know. 
when it says that the evil one masquerades as an angel of light. What looks right and good and holy can sometimes turn out to be the evil one wrapped in a facade of light. And so even though I would rather not have to offer or write or struggle with a sermon like this, trust me, it's been an incredibly difficult sermon for me to write. And even as I offer it to you now, I've been wrestling with whether to throw the whole thing out. Only I keep thinking we need to stare this in the face and ask ourselves why. Why was this mob carrying with them two, and as far as I can tell, only two names. The name of Trump and the name of Jesus. Not only that, but how can it be that once the facade of light is pulled back, and the truth becomes so much more plain and obvious. How do some of our so-called Christian leaders, like the pastor of one of the largest Baptist churches in our country, Robert Jeffries of First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, and leaders like Franklin Graham, who have so vocally defended not conservative or Republican ideals, but defended Trumpism in particular for so long, how is it that they have both, both come out since the riots and publicly said they do not regret their support of Trump? You see, here's what I believe. This mob is not a result of Republican versus Democrat ideals because neither party has a monopoly on the truth and good ideas. I believe that. And can we just be honest and humble enough to say that there are really important discussions and debates that we need to be able to have in our society about some of the big questions of how we organize ourselves, uh, like Questions like the size and the role of government in our lives, what's appropriate and helpful to create shalom, and when does it become inappropriate and unhelpful? Questions about how to best regulate markets to cultivate more shalom for the most people, especially the most vulnerable among us. We need to be able to talk about our different ideas around that because so often, Wisdom is found in a tension between competing ideas. And certainly, of all places, we in the church need to learn how to have conversations without immediately demonizing one another. You see, the answer to why what happened happened is not rooted in the best ideals of Republicans or Democrats or in the best ideals of the right or the left, it's rooted in a deep confusion between right and wrong. And so we have to ask ourselves how it is that God-fearing, church-going people in Nazareth could be so very wrong 
that they find themselves part of a mob attacking even the presence of God incarnate in their midst. Why the mob? Certainly it would be easier and a whole lot more comfortable to just ignore it and think that whatever the reason, it'll be all behind us next week. Only it won't. Because what happened in D.C. didn't start four years ago. Yes, our president is responsible for nurturing and spreading the cancer that metastasized on January 6th. But the cancer itself was there long before him. Many of us didn't necessarily know it was there. That's how cancer is, you know. Sometimes you find it early. Sometimes you don't know you have it until it metastasizes and starts infecting other parts of the body. Cells in your body begin attacking other cells in your body like an mob of people attacking and destroying the very thing they think they stand for. I think that's part of what happened in D.C. That's part of what happened in Nazareth. Our shared cancer metastasized. You see, the connection between Nazareth and now is not place or time or person. The connection is really that we have the same cancer. And it has a name. It's been well documented by the experts. We just aren't always that good at diagnosing it in ourselves. The cancer, it's called religious ethnocentric nationalism. Of course, like all cancer names, I know hearing it for the first time can be hard to make any sense of, especially if you haven't had a chance to study it much. So let me say it one more time and then explain it. This cancer is called religious ethnocentric nationalism. Broadly speaking, it's this idea that your religion and your ethnicity, your tribe of people are just just a little bit more right and better than others because you actually define what is true and right just a little bit better than others. And so you are then uniquely ordained by God to hold power over others. Now, the people in Nazareth that day wouldn't have articulated it that way for sure. In fact, they probably didn't even recognize how deeply they believed this, but Jesus apparently did. It's why he told them the stories that he told them. And it's those stories that triggered the mob. Remember when Jesus first shows up in the synagogue that day, he reads from Isaiah and he starts talking about the year of the Lord's favor coming and they're all excited. That's great news because remember, we're God's chosen people, special, set aside. So all spoke well of him and were amazed at the words coming out of his mouth, Luke writes. But then Jesus starts making new connections between their scriptures and their world. Connections that they didn't expect and the mood in the room begins to change. You'll want me to do some of this here, I know, Jesus says, but this isn't just about you. And then he goes on to remind them of the story of that great drought 
during the prophet Elijah's time and how all of Israel was suffering so greatly because of the evil heart of King Ahab. Only God wasn't just concerned about Israel. Instead, God sent Elijah, God's great prophet, to help a widow in Sidon of all places. Now that name doesn't mean much to you or to me, but it sure did to them. Sidon was one of the greatest Canaanite cities. It had a reputation. And so Jesus is making a pretty important point here. Uh, Elijah was not sent to anyone in Israel, he reminds them. Instead, he was sent to a widow in Zarephath in Sidon, Detail by detail, Jesus is driving home an uncomfortable point. And the discomfort that the mob is beginning to feel, the congregation is beginning to feel, is how he's trying to help them recognize their cancer. The discomfort is a symptom. And the congregation, they start getting a little restless. Where is he going with this? They start asking themselves. Sure, they knew about the story of Elijah, and sure, they also knew that the covenant that God had made with Abraham that made them God's people was about becoming a blessing to all of the people of the earth. But at the very same time, they had this long history focused on being set apart and unique and, quote, pure because they were the children of Abraham. And over time, that kind of thinking develops a prejudice that is alive in their religious consciousness. A prejudice that believes that you can only become God's, part of God's people if you also become Jewish. Gentiles might be nice, good people, but they are unclean. It's not really their fault. It's just how they're born. I'm not trying to be racist. I'm just being honest, someone might have said. It's this dynamic that we see play out in the early church when disciples like Peter won't even eat at the same table as Gentile Christians. Ironically, though, a generation later, that same religio-racist cancer began to take on a new form in the church. It just began to flow in the very opposite direction. Most of Christian history has been infected with sometimes very subtle, hidden expressions and sometimes very overt expressions of anti-Semitism. Certainly that was on full display in the mob at our capital. You see, the same type of cancer that was there in Jesus' hometown congregation has long been infecting white American Christians in the form of white supremacist Christianity. A Christianity where Jesus is continuously whitewashed to support subtle racist ideologies that are hidden so subtly in our hymns and in our theologies without us even realizing it. No, it's not just in the South. It's throughout the whole American church. And no, I'm not being extreme by saying that. If you want to understand that and learn more about it, pick up a book called The Color of Christ by Bloom and Harvey, and read the history for yourself. 
white American Christianity, not just in the South, but all of American Christianity has long been infected with the cancer of racist ideologies. That's not all that we have in common with the congregation in Nazareth that day. We are also infected with the cancer of religious nationalism. That sometimes overt, but more often subconscious, belief that our nation is uniquely blessed and ordained by God. That sometimes overt and sometimes subconscious belief that our nation might put up with others, but at its core, it must be defined by our religion. It was alive in Nazareth that day, and sure, not everyone would come out and say that they were necessarily more important to God than other people of the world, but it was an idea that had surfaced again and again in their scriptures and in their worship and in their hearts, either consciously or subconsciously. It is what they believed. After all, they also had stories about God's great covenant with David promising a throne for David's descendants. And then right next to that very throne, along comes Solomon to build a temple, putting their national identity and their religious identity into one. So that their patriotism and their faith became one and the same thing. The two gets all tangled together in their hearts and in their minds. That's how religious nationalism began to grow in them. It was a cancer in the hearts and minds of ancient Israel, just like Christian nationalism is a cancer in the American church, just like Hindu nationalism is in India, just like Islamic nationalism is in Saudi Arabia today. It's all the same Cancer, just different patients. Lord knows that the most deadly cancers in any society come when these two come together, when racist ideologies get blended together with religious nationalism. We're in trouble. And so even though Jesus can see this isn't going very well, his sermon there in Nazareth, he knows he has to tell them the truth for the sake of their own souls, for the sake of God's dream for the world. Jesus has to tell the truth. And so he goes on to tell them another story that took place with a different hero of their faith, Elisha. And he reminds them that of all the lepers that were sick in Israel during Elisha's time, God didn't send Elisha to heal any of them. Instead, God used Elisha to heal Naaman the Syrian. Boy, this is getting worse. Naaman was the general of their enemy's army who had been attacking their own people. Naaman, the Syrian, is the one who receives God's blessing and healing. In other words, Jesus is saying that the year of the Lord's favor I was just talking about, well, it's not just about you and us and those people that look like us and our country and our tribe 
And our party and our denomination and our race and our religion, we are not more important to God than even our enemies. We are not more beloved of God than they. Our enemies are every bit as sacred and beloved by the divine heart as you and I. And sometimes God's blessing might fall on them and not us. That's exactly the point that Jesus is driving home as he tells these stories. And this, of course, you can imagine, is why the congregation that knew Jesus since he was a little boy fomented into a mob and tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. They didn't know they had a cancer eating at their souls. They were good, God-fearing, church-going people, remember? But it was there. And when the time was right, their cancer metastasized. Brothers and sisters, the American church has the same cancer. The mob in D.C. was just one expression of our cancer metastasizing. The cancer is called religious ethnocentric nationalism. And in us, it has been formed by that deadly combination of white supremacy and Christian nationalism. And sure, we've had some surgery and treatments of this cancer throughout our history. Maybe someone told you that we were cancer-free after the civil rights era. We certainly wanted to believe that, didn't we? Only it wasn't true. Maybe we didn't know it. But it's still been living in our white churches, infecting our Christianity, slowly killing us. And it will continue to hollow out the church unless we learn to recognize its presence in us, not just in others, but also in us, and start aggressively treating it. You can find the symptoms if you're willing to look. It's there whenever our patriotism and our deep, deep gratitude for the gifts of our nation that are so wonderful begin to blind us to the sin and dark side of our nation. It's there when our patriotism gets all blended in and wrapped up into our worship so that our love of God and our love of country become one and the same thing. It's there when critiques of our nation sound like blasphemy to our ears as if someone is critiquing our God. It's there when we're no longer able to discern the difference between serving our country and serving the kingdom of God. And you know what? I can even feel it in me every time that thought flickers through my heart and mind that the best ideals of America are the light of the world. And I have to remind myself, no, they might be good and wonderful, but it is Jesus who is the light of the world. 
We can notice the symptoms in us every time we find ourselves, to our own surprise, thinking that our white Christianity is just a but, a little bit, just a smidge more accurate and more faithful than black Christianity. White American Christianity, it has the cancer of religious, ethnocentric nationalism. And certainly, yes, it is more prominent in some other parts of our body than other, some parts than other parts. But here's the thing. When cancer is in any part of your body, it is part of you. So what can we do about it? Well, healing always has to begin by accepting our diagnosis, doesn't it? And what do you do when you get a new diagnosis you're not familiar with? Well, you try to go and learn everything you can about it, right? You try to understand this thing that's going on in your body that you didn't understand before. That's a really great place to start. Go start learning about white supremacy and about Christian nationalism and about how they're related to one another, about where they historically come from, and about what subtle ways they continue to show up in our churches today. That's a really good place to start. The next step begins with a a commitment to being willing to take seriously what we say about ourselves, that we are followers of Jesus Christ, open in heart and mind, seeking after God. That means we don't have all the answers. Practicing peace, creating shalom, and creating beloved community. That has to be our deepest commitment. We aren't conservative Christians or liberal Christians. We aren't Republicans or Democrats. We aren't even Americans first. Above everything else, we are followers of Jesus Christ open in heart and mind, seeking God, practicing peace, creating beloved community. And that means that we cannot allow ourselves to be discipled by anything else. We cannot allow ourselves to be discipled by Fox News or by MSNBC News. We cannot allow ourselves to be discipled by our Twitter feed or our Facebook feed. We cannot allow those things to become the primary voices coloring our interpretation of our world. Instead, we have to saturate our hearts and minds with the words and the teachings and the practices of Jesus and allow his words and the stories of Jesus begin to shape our imaginations and begin to color our understanding of our world. And you know what that requires? That every time we find that same old cancer showing up in another spot in our body, that we will be willing to name it for what it is and take the painful medicine that is required to kill it. And then ask for God's mercy to help us get back up and follow Jesus. 
wherever he may lead us. In fact, let's do that now. Let's do that by praying together the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.